Hello and welcome to Ichiboy Podcast, Voices on the World of Work. I am your host, Bianca Luna Fabris, and in this episode, we will be hearing all about EU social policy. This episode stems from a very recent transfer special issue that you can find linked in the show notes. My guest today is Professor Martin Kern. He is Professor of Social Security and Labor Relations at the University of Amsterdam. Martin, thank you so much for being with me and with us today. I have a very first question to you that might seem quite a large question, but if you could perhaps streamline it a bit, that would be of great help. So, What I can see emerges quite clearly from the issue is that the discourse of the EU institutions with regards to social policy at the EU level has dramatically changed over the past few decades. Perhaps you could retrace the history of EU social policy in a few words. Okay, well, first of all, let me thank you, Bianca, for inviting me to this podcast. Really nice to be here. The history of social policy in the EU is is a big question. So let me try and scale it down. First of all, I think it's good to note that We've had a really resurgence of social policy at the EU level since 2017, when the European Pillar of Social Rights was uh, proclaimed. Since then, so that's the past six, seven years, we see that uh, the social policy discourse of, in particular, the European Commission and the European Parliament become uh, much more social. But it's also not only the discourse. There's really an important number of new EU social directives, recommendations and other social initiatives that have emerged at a surprising speed. And and, then especially in historical perspective, this is really uh, quite uh, remarkable, I would say, because when when originally when the EU or the predecessors of the EU started in the in the late 50s, the EU was in a way simply an economic project, so a market-making project, a project to aim to create a large European market for goods and services. And social policy, welfare state, were really supposed to be national uh, affairs, national responsibilities, and the EU and its predecessors really didn't have many competences in the social field. But somehow, as the EU does, uh, over the years, little by little, it has uh, expanded its uh, its social policy has expanded this in waves, and depending a bit on on which commission was in power, depending a bit on the rulings of the uh, Court of Justice, and depending also on the political and socioeconomic uh, circumstances. And if you look then in the past 30 years, for example, you can see that between uh, 1995 and 2004, there was a really a surge, not as big as as recently, but a surge of social policy under the Social Democrats, uh, Santer and Prodi, while... In the 10 years after that, until 2014, when there was two Barroso commissions, uh, more of center-right nature, and there was a financial crisis, social policy was seen as a burden, as a cost, as a problem for economic growth, as a problem for balanced budgets. But now, since, as I said, 2017, we are again in, in a period of search. So uh, we see a lot of new areas uh, being touched upon by the EU, like minimum wages, collective bargaining, minimum income, and quite a few more. So in a nutshell, that could be a history of social policy uh, at the EU level. So picking up on what you just said, you did say that since the implementation of the pillar in 2017, there has been a surprising speed, uh, argumentation in general of EU social policy measures. But do you think that the social dimension has really been strengthened since the adoption of the pillar? I think that the starting point is a bit the, the adoption of the European pillar of uh, social rights. No? This is, although it's called the pillar of social rights, it actually doesn't create any rights, but it's, uh, it's kind of a statement of intent, an expression of social values that the EU aspires to. It consists of 20 principles, 
that the EU wants to pursue. And then there are fairly simple, straightforward things like uh, workers have a right to fair wages or everybody in need has the right to an adequate minimum income. And so these are more like statements of intent, but they have been used really as the basis, as the justification for the development of new rights. And you can see then that indeed the social dimension has been uh, seriously strengthened, I think. There has been more, uh, much more attention to the most vulnerable workers and unemployed. There is a new directive on minimum wages. There's attention to self-employed. There's attention to platform worker, posters workers. There's been a lot of attention to trying to create a more balanced industrial relations system with a stronger voice for workers and more uh, accountability of companies. And there's been uh, new ways of financing social policy. If this is uh, just the beginning of a further development, that, that is, a, is a difficult question. As I said before, the social policy comes and goes in the EU. And it may also be that a next commission says, uh, no, we go back to austerity. We go back to the, the focus simply on the market. We don't know yet. The, the good thing, I would say, is that the pillar of social rights is, a, is an instrument that will still be there. And that, is, that will not go away anymore. And this will continue to be a potential source of new uh, social policy. And the present commission, if it would continue in its uh, present constellation, it would, I think, do a lot more still in the social field. But we don't know what comes after uh, this commission. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. But do you think there is an actual rebalancing of uh, the EU economic and social ambitions? Or do you think that we're still lagging behind in terms of social ambitions? Uh, yeah, that is, that is a, a good question. It's also a complicated question. I think it's it's best to try to separate two, to divide it in two. So if the question is, is the social dimension of the EU growing, strengthening, expanding, then there is no doubt that this is the case. Uh, there's really a range of important new social rights, uh, policies, financing instruments. But, you know, their core, their, their effects is mainly, I would say, a sort of softening of the negative impacts of European capitalism. So they, they may force employers to pay a bit more through the minimum wage directive. Uh, they may force employers to slightly improve conditions of the weakest workers with the worst jobs. They try to stop the ongoing weakening of uh, trade unions and try to foster and uh, strengthen a bit the uh, forms of uh, worker representation that we have. And, and this is, of course, all a good thing. But it's also, in, to some extent, a bit like sort of working in the margins. Because at the same time, we can say that the economic primacy, let's say, of the EU project remains intact. And that the revival of social Europe is not the same as a questioning of the EU's economic model. So there is not really a questioning of the EU's uh, economic model. And, you know, this model continues to be based on uh, market making, on freely moving capital, and on the idea that we, we have to grow, grow, grow our economy, right? So... This is a model that is, I think, fundamentally unbalanced in terms of the, uh, the division of power between workers and capital or between the poor and the rich. And it's uh, structurally fosters inequality. And apart from that, it's also a model uh, which we see more and more that is uh, harmful for nature, for the climate and for uh, the planetary resources. So as long as our social policies, and this is the case at the moment, start from the principle of growth, start from the idea that employment is the basis for social well-being and for social policy, 
you know, the, the, the balance between the social and the economic will not be improved, I think. We do not really start from the idea of uh, universal income protection. We do not really see a substantial redistribution of power, of wealth, and of income. And, and we do not uh, see uh, seriously enough addressing of, of uh, climate change and the uh, social needs related to this. So, yeah, social, social Europe does not or maybe cannot sufficiently deal with the root causes of social problems. And the root causes, they stay in place. So in that sense, I, I think the, the rebalancing that you're looking for is, is not yet there. Back to what you said at the very beginning, you did say that EU social policy had a moment of resurgence uh, during uh, social democratic uh, governments. But do you think that in the past few years things have changed now that the, both the centre-left and the centre-right are pushing for uh, greater EU social policy initiatives? Or what, what else has been happening in the political sphere? That's a really good question because it's. Uh, I think there we have really the big surprise of the last uh, six, seven years. The revival of EU social policy is not simply a leftist or a social democratic project, not at all, actually. Uh, if you look, for example, at the European Pillar of Social Rights, when it was voted in the European Parliament, it got, of, I would say, of course, eh, the, the vast majority of the left vote, but the left is a minority in the European Parliament. So it got also 55% of the uh, votes of the centre-right EPP and more than 50% of the liberal fraction of ALDE. So clearly the centre-right and, and the liberals have voted in favour of the uh, European Pillar of Social Rights, which is the starting point, I would say, of the revival of social Europe. And if we look at a particular directive like the Minimum Wage Directive, uh, which is already a directive which, which goes far beyond the traditional competencies of the EU. This directive was voted in with uh, almost 80% of the votes of the uh, European Parliament. And again, the, the left is a minority in the Parliament. So uh, we do really see a, a really peculiar situation there, that it's not simply politics that explains what we get now in terms of social policy. Eh? And I think that there are a number of other uh, or related factors that, that explain this, that explain also the special nature of this particular historical moment that we have been living in for the past few years. So I think what, what factors should you then think of? I think one is that we've more and more, and also some academics have played a, a role in that more and more we've seen attention for the fact that there is growing precarity, precarious work, and especially inequality in our European societies. This has become more and more a salient issue. And this is an issue that demands a response one way or the other. We've got the COVID crisis and the COVID crisis also led to an increased awareness of the existence of a lot of precarious jobs that were previously, at least for some people, not very visible. So I think of people working in agri-food, in supermarkets, healthcare, delivery. delivery. They, they, they were suddenly from being invisible uh, for a very long time, suddenly they became the essential jobs. Uh, but these, these essential jobs suffer from precarious working conditions, they have a, a lack of voice, and they're really on the margins of the labor market. And uh, this, again, demands some sort of a, a response. Then something entirely different, uh, we see a growing Euroscepticism, again, especially amongst the less well-off. And again, their social policy has been conceived as a possible response to this. Also, if you want to put it in big terms, 
for the, the survival of the EU project as such. And then we have really, really important, I think, the, the failure of the EU to respond adequately to the uh, financial crisis. So the EU then pushed for a deregulation of the labour market, less protection of workers, lower wages, and all these things, less social expenditure, and even imposed this kind of policies on member states that needed uh, financial assistance, right? And indeed, the social results of this, they were just a disaster. And I think today this is recognized at the EU level. It is recognized this was a type of, we could say, mismanagement, that we can't do this anymore in, in, uh, in the future. Then maybe had two points more, Brexit. We've had Brexit, meaning that uh, the UK, the country that traditionally was most against EU social policy, uh, left the scene. So it has become somewhat easier to adopt uh, social measures. And then finally, I think somehow the, the centre-left and the centre-right uh, found each other in, in some sort of a compromise, right? They do their politics now in an environment where, they, where there's more pressure for social policy. And then I think the compromise they found is that the, the, the centre-left gets what it wants in a way, more uh, or better social policy, but the centre-right also gets what it wants, uh, the continuation of the economic model and that, that remains intact. And I think there... An interesting compromise has been found between the left and the right to change, but not change too much. Allow me a, a final question that might sound a bit more normative. So let's imagine that uh, now you were advising the president of the European Commission. What would you be your advice for strengthening the EU social dimension? Okay, uh, let's first say that I hope I'll never get in that position. <laughs> but um, what would I say? One thing that I would say is that we that there is um, in the in the action plan of the pillar of social rights there are uh, three goals mentioned right and one is about employment one about uh, training and one about poverty now I, I think that poverty is really the one where things are not happening so I think what the EU has planned or has been doing is simply insufficient to seriously reduce poverty and in the the transfer issue that we were talking about uh, there's a, an article by paul copeland who clearly shows that even though poverty gets more attention it still is what he calls a third order priority so it is important but it's not top of the list and uh, my, my advice would be make it top of the list because if not with the present policies we will not get there we will not reach these targets and in that sense the action plan will be a failure. Now, the second thing that, that I, I would point to is uh, climate change. In a sort of surprising way, the pillar is totally unrelated to climate change. Huh? And there is already, uh, in my view, too little attention to this in the, uh, in the EU. The, the, the Green Deal seems to me a totally insufficient way of, of dealing with what's coming uh, in terms of climate change. And especially uh, the, the social side of it is, is totally uh, insufficient. Again, we have in the, the transfer issue a wonderful article on this by uh, Crespi and Munta, who show this, who show what, what the EU has planned as social measures and why this is uh, completely insufficient. So again, there I would, I would say take climate change much more seriously, the consequences that this will have for our societies, but also do more on the, uh, the social impact side of this. And what, has, what social measures do we need to soften the impact of climate change? 
And that may be in, in slightly vaguer terms. I think that surely today is space for and a need for a debate on what is again the, the, the future that we are going for. Is the future indeed sticking to the uh, economic model that we, we have now with all the problems that I've mentioned before and, and see social policy as sort of the way to soften it a bit? Or do we actually have to also to think of a different economic model or at least some serious changes in the economic model where, for example, reducing inequality in a serious way, not only at the margins, but in society at large, uh, becomes more center stage and where climate change and all the implications become more center stage. Uh, we, we had the, 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 uh, the attempt to do this, huh? but I think that the result of that was not so strong. So if I would be in this uh, position that you mentioned of power, then this is what I would say to the other powers that be, that do this debate, do it in a, in a, in a more serious way, in a more profound way than it's been done before to get a better idea of how we could get to a more social future. Thank you so much, Martin. And thank you to everyone that has been listening this far. Should you want to know more about uh, the issue per se, or even the two articles Martin just mentioned on, on poverty and just transition, you can find them all linked in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening.